invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning. If you're taking a Bible in front of you in the pew, it'd be page 796. Going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. I'll say at the beginning, this is a heavy passage. A um, lot in here, some hard to read, um, some confusing perhaps, and hopefully we'll be able to unpack what is the real overview message that is here in Romans 1, 30, 18 to 32. I'm going to read fairly rapidly, uh, but invite you to follow along there in your Bibles. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles." Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I told you it was a heavy passage. Let's pray together. Lord, I worship you this morning that we are no longer slaves, that there is liberty in the gospel, that we can live life in the freedom of the acceptance that we find in Jesus Christ. And Lord, there's none of us that live wholly in freedom. All of us struggle with the tyranny of our own individual gods that drive us and that captivate us at times. But I thank you that there is the potential for a growing experience of freedom through Christ. Lord, teach us about that today. Teach us about our need of that today. In, whose, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are certain passages of Scripture that are big-picture passages. Genesis 1 to 3 is a big-picture passage. It's a passage where the very beginning of the Bible, God is, is announcing to us that He, out of His own mouth, created the cosmos, the universe, and all that is. Toward the end of that creation, He created humankind. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we find what happened to humankind as the original man and woman rejected God's will for their lives, a rejection that ultimately all humans have embraced. Romans chapter 1 actually picks up the story there. It gives us the picture of humankind uh, in a worldwide rejection of God. Now, we need to remember the purpose of the book of Romans. I believe the purpose of the book of Romans is Paul is writing to uh, Jews and Gentiles. He is writing people of different ethnicities and ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, who have now entered into the church and are trying to do life together, and it's hard. And he's saying, look, some of you are Jews, some of you are Greeks, some of you are Romans, some of you are barbarians. All those people are are described in, in Romans. And he's saying, I'm going to use this book to remind you of your common experience together. And the common experience he's talking about in chapters 1 through 3 is simply the desire to have us understand the human condition that we all share. In chapter 1 of Romans, he becomes even more specific as he with one broad brushstroke gives a summary of all human beings at all time in relationship to God. It's a striking statement, and it's a mouthful claim. It's not a small thing he's attempting here, because we typically easily see our differences as people, not our commonality. Earlier this week, I spent the first four days with Marianne. We were over at um, ABWE, which is a mission, international mission board I'm on the board of, and we were there with a, a number, many, a few hundred of our missionaries from around the world, representing 70 countries of the world, almost 40% of the world's countries uh, ABWE has, has a ministry in. And it was striking in talking to people because we were with missionaries a lot at meals, other times, and finding different cultural contexts. Some of them are, are, are people from the country that have now joined ABWE. Some are, are, are from uh, North America. And we we heard about people groups that they are involved with that are utterly impoverished. But we heard about others that are among the most affluent people groups in the world. We heard of religious cultures that were predominantly Christian by heritage, others that were Muslim, others that were Hindu, others that were animist, others that were Buddhist, others that were atheistic. We heard about governmental situations which were totalitarian, democratic, monarchical, and communist. We were reminded of our differences, and all of this was with the backdrop of knowing that I'm going to a passage this morning where Paul is highlighting our shared human experience vertically. I was most struck with it when I was talking to uh, an individual that's now in our administration that had spent their lives to this point as missionaries in Great Britain. They loved Great Britain. If God gave the open door, they would be there in a second. Um, They very much identified with the British people, and this couple actually are Southerners. She has a very strong Southern accent. And as we were talking to them, I asked about how do the Brits view Americans, and he said, well, we get a pass more because we're Southerners. And I said, how is that? He says, somehow they consider Southerners less American <laughs> by personality. And he went on and said, you know, they tend to be more polite, gentler, and so forth and, than we Northerners. And 
But he gave me an illustration. I, I said, that's so fascinating. I, I can't imagine being able to have two people from Britain and me saying, oh, you're from northern Britain and you're from southern Britain. But they, they, have, they see a difference. But he was telling the story of he was on a street and he was walking with a British friend and there was a guy up ahead that was going to cross the road. And the guy did cross the road. And his British friend turned to him and he said, that's an American. And he says, how do you know that? Because he knew he didn't know him. How do you know that? And he said, because this is how a British person would cross the road. He did it twice. He said he would look both ways, both times, twice. He said, this is how an American crosses the road. He immediately starts tromping out into the street, glances to one way, glances to the other way. If he sees a car, he checks himself. He says, you Americans just charge right in, especially you northern Americans. But it was fascinating. I mean, to me, if there's anybody I would think we Americans would be somewhat like of the 70 countries, it would be Britain. But they saw a difference. So Paul's got a tall order. Paul's saying, I'm going to show how every human being from the beginning of creation and has, relates now as a result of the fall to God in a common experience. And he gives a lot of verses to talk about it. We're going to highlight four things that I think he highlights. Number one, he tells us everyone knows about God. In verses 18 to 21, he highlights this and he says, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness, godlessness, and wickedness of men. And I'm, I'll tell you, we're going to get into the, what, what this means, the wrath of God. I'm going to explain it more next time. It actually more is said in Romans chapter 2 than Romans chapter 1. But basically, the displeasure of God is on humans, and he's explaining why. And this is the bad news. Uh, verse 16 and 17 have been the good news of what God does about it. But he says the first thing you need to recognize is that everyone knows about God. In verse 19 and 20, he tells us what we know. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature are clearly seen. Everybody knows this, he says. The divine nature here, literally, a, a literal translation would be his godness. Everybody sees the godness of God. Everybody sees the eternal power of God. He says everybody knows this inherently, intuitively. From the creation of the world, they can look around them and see that. But here's an interesting statement. He says since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities are clearly seen. Now, how do you, how do you, how is visible that which are invisible qualities? And I would suggest to you the way that they are visible is because we see evidences of the invisible. If you were out in the woods, in the wilderness, and see a footprint, and this is an actual picture, that's a guy's boot with his leg going up, and that thing below him is the actual footprint of a giant Kodiak bear. If you see this footprint and you're on a hike, you need to be aware that there is a very real presence nearby that he may not have seen the Kodiak bear, but he saw the footprint of it. He saw the reality of this bear and its presence and what 
is being argued here is scenes from nature are the footprints of God. We see that. We just look at some of the scenes, just three of them quickly. These are scenes that are footprints of God that declare his power, his majesty, his creative artistry, his godness. Psalm 19 says it this way in verse 1 to 3, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That every day the voice of God is, is declaring his glory, it says, his nature, his godness, his eternal power, that these things are declared in creation. And what do they declare? There is a God of power who is a creator, a designer. There is a God with a, with a big G. And there is no place, no time, nor people group where there is not conscious awareness that such a being exists. The second thing he tells us is what people do with that knowledge. All people. You, we people. It says, naturally, we suppress the truth. The word suppress is the word it means to hold down. If you can picture having a piece of plywood, and underneath is this giant spring you're trying to push down. And this thing is just trying, and if you let it up, just spring forward. You're holding it. You're trying to push it down. You're trying to get down this thing. The, the fact that you have to suppress it is that you actually do have it. There is the truth. But there's the attempt to push it down. We know about his eternal power and godness. We sense that we are then accountable to such a God. So we hold it down. We seek to bury it. Now, who's, who's the we you're talking about, Mark? Everybody. This is an everybody passage. This is an everyone in all time, in all places, all people groups passage. And verse 21 tells us why we tend to do this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Now, I, I, this is a fascinating statement. I want to read it again. They knew him. They know who he is. They, they have a sense, okay, I see his godness. I, I, I sense that there is a, a, a God of power, but they don't glorify him as God, and then this phrase, nor did they give thanks to him. Now, nor did they give thanks to him? It seems a little anticlimactic. I mean, that's the problem? They didn't give thanks? I mean, how, how petty is that? God is angry because people don't thank him? I mean, really, is this the source of all the evil and suffering and problems in the world? We don't give thanks? I mean, when we're little, we're told that we need to say thank you. It's, it's a courtesy. So is this the issue? Is the whole problem in the human race bad manners to God? What's he saying? It's really important to understand what he's saying. What he is saying here is that we are all, to one degree or another, guilty of plagiarism. We, we do intellectual property theft. Basically, we are not giving credit, nor giving thanks, nor acknowledging the source 
of things in our lives when we are not grateful, we are, when we are not glorifying God. It is claiming that you came up with this, acting like you created yourself, that you control your own circumstances, you run your own piece of the cosmos. It is not acknowledging your dependence. It is a claim of self-sufficiency to be cosmically ungrateful. It is to say, I, I want to suppress this because if, if God is really what he sent, I sense he is, if he is really the controlling God, that he is running his universe, that he's created everything, that argues for the fact that I'm not in control. It argues for the fact that, that I'd be obligated to do what, what he wants me to do and I don't want to do. We don't want to say we need God, that we are indebted to God, that he has the right to tell us how to live and what to do. Our fallenness wants desperately to keep control of our lives. And so there is the desire to say, well, he, he's less, I, I, he's, he's, he's God, but I don't really want him to be as transcendent as creation, the cosmos would argue that he is. Many of us would believe in God, and I'll say this, all of us to some degree or another do reduce God in our lives. And we do it for the same reason. We want control. We, we don't want to feel that utter dependence upon God. It's interesting, many years ago when dinosaurs walked the earth, there was a uh, TV, I lost the word, uh, talk show host named David Frost. And David Frost was interviewing Madeline Murray O'Hare. And the scene was they were arguing. She was a strong very outspoken atheist, and, and David Frost, while not a believer in Christ, he believed there was a God. So he was debating with her, and I, he, he seemed to be feeling that um, he should have won this argument easier than it was going, and so he's getting frustrated, and so he actually uh, decided to get reinforcements. So he turned to the crowd, and he said, uh, how many of you believe in God? And just about everybody's hand went up. And so he turned to Madeline and Mario O'Hare like, they agree with me. I mean, obviously, the, 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 this is democracy, rule of the majority, I win. And, but I, I read an article by a pastor that actually had, 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 had seen the thing as well. And he was, he was writing about the event, and he said, this is what Madeline Mario O'Hare should have said. She should have said this then. Okay, keep your hands up. How many of you believe in the God of the Bible? The God who came down in lightning and thunder on Mount Sinai with Ten Commandments. A God who is a consuming fire, who cannot look on evil, who says that all sin is punishable by eternal death, and all human beings are under that sentence, including you. And see how many of the hands went down. He was pointing out what I think Romans 1 is saying. Many of those hands would have come down. Many people would say, well, I, I believe in God, but not that God. We live that way. We also tend to suppress God. We, we want a vending machine God, a God where he owes me. You know, I put my coin in, I give my offering, I do my thing, and out comes the candy gar bar of God's blessing. This is how things work, you know. I do this, he does that, it works well. But when God says, no, we're going to go this way, see, I, you know, that, I, I don't know if I want a God like that. I don't want a God that has the ability to call the shots, and I feel I have certain desires, I have certain goals, I have certain ambitions. I, 
I want God in my life, but, but please don't think that you have to be involved in every part. I mean, telling me how to use my money, telling me how to, uh, principles I should have from my, my, my workplace, um, how I should treat my neighbor, uh, you know, what I should do with, with all the decisions and, and practical moral issues of my life. I'd like to suppress a little bit and just put down a little bit this picture because there is the initial recognition that if God is the God that we see revealed around us, that if He is a God of eternal power and true Godness, we are dependent beings. Our self-sufficiency is a mirage, that our next breath is not ours to choose, that we are utterly, we are dependent on the being that keeps the cosmos in order. And so what Paul is saying is the natural reaction of humankind has been and remains that they attempt to suppress God, which leads to the second thing. All of humanity replaces God with idols. Verse 23 and 25, I'll read them quickly. Verse 23 and 25, it says this, um, Although they claimed to be wise, verse 22, they became fools and, claim, and, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Everyone replaces God with idols, what he's saying. That, that, that's what they do. That this is one of the main things Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 1. Idolatry is inevitable. You either worship the creator as the sovereign Lord of your life, as control central, at control central of your life, or you replace him with someone else, something else, a created thing. There's no third option. There's no third curtain to choose. These are alternatives. Either God is seated at the control center of our lives or something created is. There are countless things. Now, we may not be, you may not have a statue in your family room that's to the goddess uh, Athena or something like that, but there are idols that we have that run our lives. It is uh, whatever it is that drives you. We are telic beings. That is from the word telos, which means we need to have an end or an aim is what it means. It needs to be a purpose or meaning to our life, that we're driven that way. We need something that, that is why I get up in the morning. There's something that, that, that makes me feel like I have, I have some value. There's a meaning. There's a purpose. There's a, there's a telos. We are created as telic beings. We need that. There is something that will be central in every one of our lives, and that something becomes our practical God with a small g. I did a series of messages years ago on American idols. And in that, I, I, I mentioned that there are three verbs in the Scriptures that identify something that has become an idol in our lives. It is either something we trust in more than we trust in God, or it is something we love more than we love God, or it is something that we serve or obey more than we serve God. It can be anything. Serve can be um, people's opinion, that I'll do that rather than do what God wants me to do. I, I'll, I'll be feared, intimidated by peer pressure. All of those can be 
evidence that something has become idolized in our lives. Here in Romans chapter 1, we see certain idols. Sex is here. Money is here. In chapter 2, we see moralism and religiosity become idolized. Sex, money, moral efforts can be idolized in our lives. Idolatry is looking to something to give you the kind of safety and security that God can provide only. Now, how can money be an idol? For instance, just to illustrate, it gives people a sense of control. Money is a way of getting human approval. Money is a way to keep order in your life. Do what you want. Go where you want. It can give status. And I tend to, we tend to know what, our, what is driving our hearts best when it's threatened. We don't see it as easily, but boy, when it, there's a potential of that being gone, our emotional reaction tells us how prominent something is at the control center of our lives. Mentioned to you before, Rocky Balboa in, in the first movie, Rocky, when he was there with Adrian, his girlfriend, and he's getting ready for the big fight with Apollo Creed, and he knows he's not going to win, but he says to her, if I can go the distance, I'll know I'm not a bum. Well, whatever it is that tells you you're not a bum tends to be what we deify in our lives, what we displace God with. In her memoir, Easter Everywhere, Darcy Stanky recounts how she had grown up in a Lutheran pastor's home, pretty much left her Christian background, went to New York City, and dove headlong into the uh, club-hopping scene, in her own terms, into sexual obsession. She wrote several successful novels. But later on in her life, in middle age, she wrote what was called Easter Everywhere, a memoir. She acknowledged that through all that season, she had a sense of, of discontent, of, of, of uh, restlessness, of unfulfillment. And in the middle of the book, she highlights a quote that was profoundly significant to her. It was a quote by Simone Weil, the Holocaust survivor, actually. And in it, he, he talks about Romans 1 terminology. Here's what he said that she said was, was the changing reality in her life. One has only, this is his quote, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. If one denies God, one is worshiping some things of the world in the belief that one sees them only as such, but in fact, though unknown to yourself, you are imagining the attributes of deity, of divinity, into them. Was struck in a review I read of that, Stephen Metcalf of the New York Times wrote about Simone Weil's opinion, and he said this, this is an extraordinary statement. It is a testament to how penetrating the concept of idolatry is to people, that people recognize, we, we sense that there is, there's always something that's driving me, there's always something that's, that's ruling my actions. Well, the Bible says it's either God with a big G or God's with a small g. The third thing we find, we know God, we displace God, is found in these verses, the result. Everyone has been dehumanized by their response to God. People's thinking is messed up. Verse 21 and 22, it says this, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. What Paul is saying here is when we suppress 
what we know to be true about God because we do not want to arrange our lives under it. When we then seek to live our lives in freedom, but actually we allow other idols in and now are serving them, it has impact on our lives. And this is what he talks about. The first impact is it dehumanizes our thinking. The process of dehumanization is in this passage. He says, if you worship things, not the person of God, you become yourself more thing-like. You become like your idol. That is exactly what Psalm 135 says. Here's what it says. Listen to this statement. Psalm 135, verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but can't speak, eyes, but can't see. They have ears, but can't hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Here's the kicker, verse 18. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. It's saying, here are these idols. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have mouths that don't speak. They have ears, but don't hear. They're just sort of inanimate. They're, 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 they're dead. They're not real. And what he's saying is in our humanness, the more we place idols at the center of our lives, the more dehumanized we become in human experience. And he tells us why. He says, because they cause our thinking to become futile. The word literally means empty or, or, or it's used, translated as worthless. What is happening is idols corrupt our thought processes. And here's how they do it. They take control. If you've ever, idolatry is basically spiritual addiction. It is being addicted to something else. And addiction is exactly the futility of thought that is being talked here. The idea that, that I don't see idols in my life. I live in denial. I don't recognize their influence in me. I can control my addiction. Idols weave a delusional field. You always minimize their impact on you. Let me try to illustrate this. I mentioned money can be an idol. Here's what money does in captivating your thinking. Money begins as you serve money and make this central. This is what I'm trusting in. This is what's driving me. This is where my worries and everything, and it's all about this. What money does is it begins to have your thinking start being you are what your money says you are. You are what your checkbook, you are what your, your, your account is, you are what your possessions are. It begins to define you, it tell you, and it's a lie. But when that becomes your idol, when beauty is your idol, you start thinking you are your body shape. This is who I am. And people may not kneel today before Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, but multitudes of young women are driven to depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image because their idol begins to define them and say, this is who you are. But it's not who you are. But when we make other idols that which displaces the true God at the center of our lives, our thinking begins to be dominated by these idols. We could talk about your job. Your job, you begin to believe your job is what you are. That this defines you. If you lose your job, you're nothing. Well, it's, it's a lie. It's not who you are. But it feels like who you are when that becomes your idol. Here's what happens. You didn't want God to be God of your life. You wanted to be free. You wanted autonomy. 
But your new gods, small g, are tyrants. These tyrants define you. They impact your thinking and reasoning. They tell you you are nothing without them, but they disappoint. They never deliver as promised. To displace God for freedom is absolutely to displace the living God who has created you, who has designed you, who loves you, who is for you, with the God that will rule your life, that will dictate your life, and will never deliver as promised. And our thinking gets twisted. We find ourselves defined by our idol. It can be our desires, it can be our possessions, it can be relationships, whatever it is. We find our thinking isn't right anymore. And that's why I use the, the language of addiction, because it begins, oh, no, I'm not controlled by this. Really? Watch what happens when it's gone. Our thinking gets twisted and changed. Our thinking is messed up. All because we've suppressed the true God and displaced Him. But it is not only our thinking that is messed up. People's sexuality is messed up. Verse 24 to 27, it says that God gave them over to sinful desires. The word desire here is often translated lust in the New Testament. I think it's better to understand exactly what the word is in the original because it's fascinating. It's the word epithumia. Thumia is talking about wants, desires. But the word epi is like epicenter. The place you don't want to be in a, th in a hurricane or a tornado is the epicenter. It's where everything's heightened. It's where epi means it is, it is exacerbated. It is, it, is, it is overblown. These are inordinate desires, extraordinary desires. These are desires out of control. And God says this. Here's what happens with people. First of all, they, they suppress the knowledge of God, because they want to do it their own way. They want to live their own life. They want control. But what they don't realize is they actually bring themselves under control of other gods, despotic gods, self-destructive self gods. And God says this, my judgment on them is I'm not going to throw lightning bolts at them. I'm not going to explode their cities. I'm going to just say, go ahead. Follow your epa desires. Follow your overwhelming sensual desires. Our culture is exhibit A of this. Live that. Try to find your fulfillment there. He, he turns us over to it, but he says, this is not where true life and satisfaction would be. This is what the woman was saying, and she told us about her memoirs. She did the club hopping thing. She did the sensual lifestyle. She was a famous artist, uh, author, and yet, as Darcy Steinke says, there was an emptiness. Her idols let her down. The epi expression of her desires did not bring fulfillment. One of the most famous authors in our history is Oscar Wilde. In his later years, he made this statement, I had almost everything, but I let myself be lured in the long spells of senseless and sensual ease. I deliberately went to the depths in search of new sensations. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me, and I passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber someday has to cry aloud from the housetop. 
I cease to be Lord over myself. A fascinating statement. I cease to be Lord over myself. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. Strikingly, Oscar Wilde, in a separate memento, made this statement. When the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. A a haunting, reminiscent statement of Romans 1. He says, I wanted to be Lord of my life. But I found as I gave in to my epi desires, it was not freedom, it was captivity, it was bondage, it was emptiness. And when the gods wanted to, to mock me, they allowed me to go into the fulfillment of all my desires. It's exactly what Romans 1 is saying. Messed up spiritual experience is taking spiritual, sexual experience, is taking sexual experience outside of God's designed purposes and boundaries. It is saying, I want it this way. I want to be sexually free. I want to do my own thing. I want to find satisfaction there. And God is saying, when you do that, you are losing the true capacity of the beauty of this experience. This passage is saying that everyone's sexual desires are messed up. He's not highlighting one people group. Verse 24 is a general statement to everyone. He is saying that the man whose wife once said to me, my husband uses my body to love himself, that man has a messed up sexuality. He is saying that to find sexual satisfaction by yourself is living at that moment out a messed up sexuality. He is saying that as Cosmopolitan magazine recently advised women that the way to, quote, wow a man after sex is to ask him for a ride home. The idea is make it clear you have no intention of hanging around hoping for a relationship, basically encouraging women to disassociate sex from relationship and as an expression of love and commitment. That is a messed up sexuality. And he's saying when you, when you operate on this, it seems like freedom. But it's not free. It's not free. Living out the epa, out of control desires, does not lead to freedom. Now, if you paid attention, I was reading through this passage, you know there's a very controversial statement in verse 26 and 27. And I'm just going to touch on this. You're saying, Mark, what about this? It seems to condemn sex, same sex encounters. I believe it does. But I want you to know, and I want to highlight this, this passage is not about gays. This passage is about idolatry. This passage is about everybody. This passage is saying whatever lifestyle, whatever, whatever, uh, however we use sexual experience, however we do outside of God's boundaries, wherever we say, I want to do it the way I feel, comfortable. I want to have it my way outside of God's boundaries is to say, okay, you are now deifying that thing, but you are missing the chance to experience the holistic character of ultimate human life in a relationship with God. Now, there are life experiences, I'm sure, represented in this room that I know nothing about. And I don't pretend to say I know how this would feel or how I would, if I had these desires, how difficult it would be. 
I can only tell you this. It has been my experience that there is nothing that satisfies and brings meaning to a person's life like allowing Jesus Christ to be the center of your life and that anything else that is, is placed and says, well, I'm going to have it my way in this area, no matter what it is, no matter how it feels, no matter how natural, it leads to less than what God wants to do in your life. Every one of us has those things. Some of us don't identify. There are, there are things in verses 28 to 32, like, like Randy was saying, I don't struggle with fear. Some of us do. I do. Some of us struggle with this, struggle with this. We all have different ways that we are trying to do life ourselves apart from God. He's saying the more that you allow God to be central in your life, to live according to his principles, the more you will have human life as he designed it to be, and to do it any other way is a mirage. You will live under a God. You will live under a God. There is the God with a big G. There are all the other gods. The other gods are tyrannical and destroy. So our last point, where do we go with this? Everyone can be restored to God. Verse 16 and 18, 17 and 18 are tied together. Verse 16 and 17 are talking about the, the gospel. He says, the power of God to salvation. The word salvation means deliverance. That he brings deliverance. Deliverance from what? From the lifestyle he's going to describe in verses 18 to 32. We've known about God, but refused to let him be God and live in grateful praise. We've replaced him with other things at the center of our lives. Those very gods have messed with us. Our thinking, our actions, our relationships bear the mark of that messing. But in Christ, we can find what we are trying to find other places on our own. We can be restored to life as it was intended to be with the living creator God on the throne of our lives. I'm closing with this. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're listening online. Maybe you're in this room. And you're tired of life with you and your desires on the throne. Maybe you're here and you have tracked with this passage. And the Spirit of God is right now whispering into your heart certain truths. These words are for you. You don't have to be driven and controlled by your desires. You can embrace God's forgiveness in Christ. You can claim the new life available in Him. You can receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Enter into a relationship with Him. Walk with Him. Let Him be at the control center of your lives. He's telling us the latter part of chapter 1 that we'll go back to the beginning and experience the gospel, the good news of deliverance. I don't know where you are today, but it may be that God is specifically speaking to your heart. If he is, I'd love the chance to talk with you, to open the Bible together and see how can you enter a personal relationship with God through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we've taken a long time this morning to try to unpack this passage, and there's so much that is left unsaid. I just ask, Lord, that you would apply it as you see the needs of our hearts. Speak into us. God, our goal is not to change people's orientation of life. Our goal is not to make moral people. It's not to 
change people's convictions. Our, God, our, our goal is what I believe is your goal. It's to bring them to Jesus, that you would be central in our lives. Lord, you'll sort out all the rest. So do that, Father. Draw people's hearts that are in this room or at home watching right now to say yes to Christ. We believe when we say yes to you, everything else will get sorted out in your own timing, your own way. I pray you do that. With every head bowed, eye closed, nobody looking around, please. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Pastor Mark, I just, I feel like I was here by God's appointment. This was a text and message I needed to hear, and there are things that God is really speaking into my life. Would you pray for me specifically? Because there are things that God really is sharing with me as a result of Without anybody looking around, would you just slip up your hand and say, Mr. Mark, would you pray for me? Yes. Others? Yes. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I see hands. You see hearts. You know what's going on inside. Your spirit's at work in the place that we can't get to. Complete it, Lord. Do whatever needs to be done to lead each of these people into the liberty of a Christ-centered, Christ-as-Lord life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord. We are dismissed.